You're listening to 1881, powered by the American Hereford Association and part of the Hereford Network. Here's your host, Shane Bedwell. Welcome back to another episode of 1881. This is Shane Bedwell, your host, and uh, today we've got an exciting guest uh, online, uh, one that's uh, deep in Hereford history, one that's deep in uh, the business and has had an instrumental effect uh, and impact on the genetic evaluation over time and the phenotypes that have flowed into it. And so today's guest uh, is Mr. Douglas Olson with uh, Olson Ranches. And so we're excited to have Douglas join us on this segment and share a little bit about his program um, and what they're doing in their own operation uh, as you well, uh, many of you may know, and a lot of you do, he also um, is the operator of the largest national reference sire program and sire test uh, program, uh, I would say, maybe in the world. Uh, and we happen to be lucky enough to have uh, uh, that be a Hereford national reference sire test. And so, Douglas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to join you and uh, share with you some of the information that we know about the National Reference Sire Program, as as well as just share part of the history and and the legacy of the Hereford breed. Yes, sir. So, Douglas, uh, why don't you share us a little bit of background about uh, the Olsons? Uh, I know uh, Art's not. A, on us uh joining us today but uh, uh both uh him and you are involved uh in, in your operation your father art and uh let's let's share a little bit of background about you folks yeah you're right shane that today it is my father art and myself in the operation as, long, as well as our families uh so i am a fourth generation steward of this land and uh, our family came up from kansas in 1885 after stopping there for a while uh, originally coming from denmark but uh, uh, they came up here in 1885 and settled in western nebraska in the panhandle uh, near harrisburg nebraska and uh, so we've we've been here since then they've always had hereford cattle and some crops along the way and so as you kind of look back on some of the the history of, of my ancestors uh, it kind of goes back and forth between generation which one they uh, put the most emphasis on whether it was cattle or crops and uh, my, my father was would land in the one where it was a little more emphasis on the cattle and uh, art uh, my dad was certainly like the Hereford cattle, uh, raised registered Hereford cattle for several years, sold bulls for several years. And then uh, as I was growing up, we uh, was just kind of at the end of the bull sales. I remember a couple of the bull sales, but then we went to commercial Hereford cattle uh, and eventually started crossbreeding with some Red Angus. But we ran single sire pastures and uh, kept track of the genetics um, of all those different groups and uh, basically we would know the generation or the the pedigrees of of all those commercial cows going clear back to when i was a as a young kid so with those commercial cows today our operation consists of both dry land irrigated crops plus the cattle uh, we raise alfalfa corn wheat peas barley and then on the crops or on the livestock side, of course, we have the mama cows that uh, we're kind of focusing on today. But yeah, and then we retain ownership of all those cattle and finish those cattle in our own lots today. Um, so we own those till they're harvested. And we also do a little custom breeding for customers. And then uh, more recently, we do some custom data collection with our grow safe or feed efficiency facility there on the ranch today. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think it's neat uh, that you've, you've been able to, you know, go back home and, and live that childhood dream after college and 
going back to the ranch and, and working with your, your father art, right. And, uh, what you guys have been able to do. And, uh, it's always good coming out to the ranch and, and seeing the both of you, but, uh, you've got a great, uh, family, um, that I've got to spend some time with and get to interact with working, uh, cows and, uh, eating some of Pam's good cooking. So, to share a little bit about your, your family, Douglas. Yeah, great. Yes, I have a, a wonderful wife, Pamela, uh, and we have three boys. Uh, Isaac's our oldest, Luke, and then Gabe. And so they're all involved in the operation. And, and now that Isaac's in high school, he's, well, they're all showing cattle, but Isaac's in FFA and 4-H showing cattle through that and uh, certainly involved in the operation. Uh, do their part as far as helping out in, in all spec, aspects of the operation. So appreciate the family being there and, and look forward to seeing what those boys become and enjoying our life there today. Certainly. So maybe share a little bit, uh, you know, you were talking about your program there in the early years. Um, you had a, a time there when you went to college went to UNL and uh, uh, some of your background and, and why you came back to, to the ranch. Yeah, from a, from a young age, uh, my parents, my mom and dad uh, just gave my, my sisters and I, uh, two sisters, uh, we all had the opportunity to do uh, work at home uh, with the, both the crops and the livestock, but education was extremely important for my parents and uh, so we focused on our schoolwork, but we did lots of activities with that. And so 4-H would be one of those activities that involved us with agriculture. Uh, you know, I remember as probably an eight, nine-year-old 4-H member being in the, the Fort, Matt, Fort Morgan, Colorado packing plant, looking at carcasses uh, from our 4-H steers. And so wow. some, of, some of my early memories of the 4-H program there. Um, you know, we've always supported education, whether that's the classroom, uh, extension, university meetings. Uh, so whether, whether we're going to the Range Beef Cow Symposium or the Beef Improvement Federation meetings, we're, we're always trying to learn, learn new things. And so, yeah, you, you talked about, I went to the University of Nebraska. I spent four years in college, um, I graduated there with a chancellor scholar uh, with highest distinction and ag honors degree and had multiple professors try to convince me to come back to grad school, uh, especially in the meat science area. I had some interest there. I had a prof couple of professors there that really tried to get me to come back to grad school. And then uh, genetics. I had a professor that really wanted me to to stay with that and I mean obviously they picked up on what I was interested in and and those were two two highlights for me in, in college and just what I enjoy you know some of the highlights of what I enjoy on the ranch also and so whether it was activities with the judging team or you know Nebraska Youth Council Ag Youth Council um, other organizations there it's just just ways that we learned uh, not just the beef industry, the cattle industry, but the people part of it, the importance of the, the consumer, and uh, how all these things fit together. Well, that, um, I mean, Nebraska's had a rich history of, of being very successful in uh, animal breeders. Uh, meat science program's been strong, and uh, you can see that in your work today. You know, uh, you kind of have your own um, graduate program, really, at Olson Ranch each and every year as you send uh, new sires through it. And so uh, you've you've kind of taken a different approach to traditional grad school, but uh, that's what I, I really enjoy about you because, uh, you know, you have the depth and understanding and you know, it's it's all about making progress, and you've certainly done that um, there at your operation and, and, and through the years. So 
You know, Douglas, you would have returned home after college in, in what year there? So I would have graduated from college in 1994. 1994. And uh, you guys have, were you mainly commercial Herefords at that time, or did you still have a have a small oh, registered that, herd? No, at that time it was uh, stri- it was all commercial Hereford cattle. All commercial. So you made the decision, Art and you, to get back in the registered business when? Or, was it, or should we start with the reference sire program? Or kind of what led to that? Well, I think it was the it was the excitement of knowing the genetics in the National Reference Sire Program, and as we alluded to, the genetics of our excitement. Um, I think that led us back into the registered program. Yep. So you're 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 back there mid nineties, and um, you're wanting to put what you've learned in college to work the the opportunity for genetic selection and improvement. And, um, you know, here a few years later came the, the birth of the national reference sire program. So let's kind of talk about that history, Douglas. Well, actually when we, when I was getting ready to graduate from college, um, I had reached out to, uh, to Jim Williams actually with American Herford Association. He was a field rep at that time. And, uh, we were looking for some bulls to start AI and cows too, because we wanted to improve some genetics in our herd. And uh, so we came agreement of some bulls to try. And we actually just kind of worked with uh, some fairly close neighbors, Wyoming Hereford Ranch and the berries up near Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so we used some bulls from them for a few years. And uh, we started, when I started, we AI'd 65 heifers. I remember that first year we AI'd 65 heifers when I came back from college. And uh, I basically doubled how many cows or heifers I AI'd until I got to about 1,200. And then we kind of plateaued there for a while. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, so, so some of that data collection that we did for them there in the mid-90s. Uh, and that was exciting for us. But we didn't feel like that data was getting used by as many people or getting used to its fullest extent that we thought it should be. Yeah, so it, it was mainly just uh, reporting the, the sire means or phenotypes back to the breeder and and not going into the genetic evaluation, which is good. I mean, uh, a lot better than, than nothing, right? But uh you saw more opportunity out there. Correct. I mean, we, I mean, we have that passion for breed improvement or just, I mean, even just the genetics that we have for that improvement and uh, those breeders that we were using those that semen from were not getting the advantage of what they were putting into it. And so, um, you know, I wanted more for them too. Very good. So, um, Let's talk about uh, what what was the next step, and then you know the the reference sire program. How how you would have sat down with was it uh, Lovell or Craig at the time? Who who would have kind of got it started along with Jim there? Right. Well, Jim was familiar with our program and with the beginning of certified Hereford beef. We had actually shipped some steers to. Red Oak, Iowa, and some of those early years, and uh, harvested some steers out there. Uh, I remember we were shipping those out there. Actually, I might have still been about the time I graduated from college that those cattle went out there. And uh, so we were involved with them some, uh, but uh, then as, I mean, Jim knew the data we were getting. Uh, We had talked to Lovell some. And uh, somewhere in the American Hereford Association, they decided to uh, do some sort of structured program. And so then uh, Craig and John Huff and Lovell Kendall and and, uh, Jim Williams kind of approached us as a group and started talking about what our interest would be to do this for the Hereford Association. And uh, so that's kind of where the discussion started. And... uh, they had already 
at the time they had brought it to us, they had already talked to the Beef Improvement Federation as far as how to do some of these structured tests. And so we were set up to uh, to go forward and they had that, that in line. And uh, that was about the time we decided that we didn't want to calve in March anymore. We had been a typically a first of March calving system. And uh, so it would have been the, the, the fall or the summer of 98, uh, we would have AI'd a few cows for a March calf for 99, uh, but the most of the cows were AI'd in August for uh, a mid-May due date. And uh, so those, those cows were born in 1999. That was the first year that we raised cattle for the, the National Reference Sire Program. After we had had those cows bred that were do with those first calves in 1999, uh, the National Cattlemen Beef Association had put together the Beef Tenderness Project, and uh, it was patterned much after the Hereford Association's program that they had developed with us and other breeders. And so the Hereford Association was already ahead of the schedule as far as the National Cattlemen's Tenderness Project, and so we had some of the very first progeny being tested that went into that tenderness study. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that data is, uh, I mean, that, that was, that was pretty profound data. And I mean, I know you guys talk about, uh, still, uh, some progeny coming out of that, uh, tenderness project that, uh, found some excellent Hereford animals that really excelled. Yeah, that was a fun, that was a fun project. And I, at that point, we were we fed our cattle some at our place, but they were finished at a custom lot. And, and I still remember the day going down and picking a, a feeder heifer out of the feedlot down there for our own freezer. And uh, the cowboy that was helping me pick pick her out said, "Well, I've never had somebody come in here and said the tenderness data suggests that this heifer is the best eating animal in the pen." <laughs> And uh, as it turned out, that's probably still the most tender meat that I've ever had any place on my plate. Yeah. So just for the record, what what was the sire involved there? (laughs) That was MC Ranger. MC Ranger. Yeah. Yep. Very good. So kind of walk us through the early years of testing. I just learned something there. I I just assumed you guys... uh, had finished all your cattle there at the ranch the entire time. And, and I didn't know there in the early years that, uh, they were at a custom yard there in the beginning. Actually, since 1992, we've probably collected carcass data on all the steer progeny that have left our place. Uh, but in the early years there, we, uh, would feed the cattle, uh, the first, 90 to 100 days of the feeding period at our place, and then we would take them to a custom lot uh, to be finished. And so in the first years of the National Reference Sire Program, we would have fed those cattle for 90 days at our place, and then we would have taken them to a custom lot within our county, uh, here close to us. Uh, They finished those cattle and were shipped to harvest from from that feedlot. And then... As time went on, we started feeding the cattle longer and developed the relationship with buyers that uh, we ended up finishing those cattle at our facility on our ranch. So, you know, for those of you that uh, that, that maybe don't understand, so the, the National Reference Sire Program, or if you're not familiar with what it is, it's, it's what Douglas has talked about. It's a structured sire test. Um, where we utilize the Olson herd, um, that we know pedigree data back going to the, that first year, right? Uh, maybe a little bit later. Uh, and so we have, we have pedigree identified the cow herd, uh, through multiple generations. And, uh, we, we use between 15, 17 different sires per year and they're randomly made, they're randomly mated to um these cows and heifers 
And so we end up with a group, a progeny group of somewhere between uh, 30, 40, 50 in some years, um, one-time AI uh, on, on these cows and heifers. And they are measured all the way through from birth uh, to harvest. And uh, now in the more recent years, you know, since about the mid, uh, I guess, 2010, uh, feed intake is now a big part of that. And, and Douglas has been uh, one of the more progressive breeders within their own herd. And uh, this has uh, definitely been a catalyst uh, to some of the traits, dry matter intake, for example, and, and how we've used that in the indexes. Uh, couldn't have been done with without, uh, you know, this kind of data. So that's that's kind of what, you know, the, the reference sire test is and how it's structured. Um, Douglas, let's, let's focus a little bit, um, you know, because you're a big part of the selection, uh, of the, of the sires that we use. Uh, let's, let's talk about that process of how bulk gets picked or used in the program. That's a, that's a great question. And it's a, it's a great thing that we need to visit about because I get that question plenty that uh, how, how are these bulls chosen for this it all starts with the breeder nominating the bull and uh, that nomination goes to shane and uh, shane will walk you through that process but the, the it all starts with the breeder and that person nominates the bull that they want tested and uh, so they will get a list of uh, depending on the year over 30 bulls to choose from and so we make we walk through our choices on that and then discuss those with uh, Shane or the director of breed improvement uh, with that and so a lot of things that we're kind of looking for to make our herd better or fit our resources uh, so we've put a lot of emphasis over the years of the program on lowering birth weights, increasing calving ease. Uh, our cattle, our finish weights have increased over the years, uh, but we have probably tried to, to optimize some of those weights and not necessarily pushed to the extremes of the heavy growth traits. And uh, in western Nebraska, we have limited resources, and especially when you go to uh, to a June, July calving, breeding cows in August, uh, I think we have to be careful about how much how much extra growth, or especially how much milk some of those cows have, uh, to get those cows rebred and producing a calf again the next year. So we've tried to optimize that by not necessarily maximizing milk. Um, I probably had a little different theory on milk when we were March calvers, and the feed resources lined up in that system a little differently. The thing I, I think with the EPDs that have been developed over the years and partially from data out of our herd, but sustained cow fertility and the importance of keeping that cow in the herd for multiple years. And that's extremely important for profitability. And certainly when you look over at the carcass traits and, and what we've been able to do over the years through this program, it's, it's, it's pretty neat to see the progress, the, the progression of, of what's happened there. Um, we can document that like our marbling scores will increase nine points a year or would be the trend line for marbling score. And so it's, it's a highly heritable trait. It's something that we can make selection upon and uh, the proof is certainly there and uh, certainly the quality traits, uh, help when it goes to selling those products to the the uh, people that harvest these cattle uh, which in turn are getting paid for the qu quality animals when they sell them to the consumers 
And I, I think that's uh, well put um, on the end product side. I mean, it's a, it's a heritable trait. A lot of them are heritable traits. And if you, you have any selection intensity at all going on, uh, you're going to make progress. And you guys have definitely raised the bar pretty high in that regard. I think one one thing that you stated, not every, not every breeder or uh, member has been to your ranch before, but uh, it's not the desert. Uh, but some years it is because it, it doesn't rain a whole lot out there. And I, I think what you guys have tried to do is not uh, force cows to work in this environment. You've tried to breed cattle that thrive in this environment. And uh, I think, honestly, that's what we're up against a lot is that uh, we're, tr- we're trying to put a Corvette in a uh, demolition derby. And... Uh, it's just not working in some cases where, um, I mean, you guys, you, you rough your cattle, um, you make them earn it. Uh, supplementation is really not needed, uh, in your environment because, uh, you calve in that, in that summer window, uh, those, those calves are weaned early on there. um, and uh, those those cows earn it, and so you know, animals that uh, are high octane, high producing, those genetics show up in the feed yard, and you've been able to take advantage of that later on. But the emphasis on the longevity, the mama cow, the the ability to breed, I think is tremendous when you talk about your one time AI. Um. So I want you to give a stat, Douglas. I want you to talk about uh, your one-time AI percentage relative to bales of hay fed annually for supplementation. Well, I, I, you alluded—I mean, you nailed the the importance of that in, in our system. It's the system that we have, the resources that we have available, and the resources we choose to use. Um, and every ranch is different. Um, our system doesn't work for everybody. Everybody has a different set of resources. Uh, but certainly in our environment and our choice that we've chose to run our cattle, uh, they spend all winter on corn stalks uh, with very little hay. Uh, this winter's been a this winter's been a rough one, uh, extremely rough one, and and I had a a neighbor that's well versed at the university at uh, harassing me about uh, not feeding my cows, and I had to had to correct him. We did at that point in February we had fed six bales of hay. So uh, <laughs> he's not joking, folks. I I've been out there uh, probably uh, ten times since I've worked for the association, maybe more. I've never seen a stack of uh, round bales sitting around there. I, I, it just, it just doesn't exist. And so, um, but then we come back uh, in April, May, and and we can use some cheatgrass, and those cows don't have a calf on them, so they can move pastures quickly. We can flash graze some cheatgrass and other grasses out in our pastures. Uh, you know, we were quite concerned when we switched to that calving system of breeding cows in August on dry grass. Uh, but we've actually gotten along really well in that system. Uh, but those cows do have to earn it. And so we AI those cows in August. Uh, our yearling heifers have one chance to be to be bred. Uh, we do bring them in a lot for a little bit of ease of, uh, of handling them during breeding, but they only have one chance. And uh, from there, we take those cows go on and produce. And so the importance of a, a cow that produces every year is, is the profitability of a ranch. And so I, I think that's just our system. It doesn't fit everybody. And I, I certainly would be the first one to admit that. Yeah. And I, I the way you've been able to uh, weave uh, the cover crops, you know, I, you talked about using utilizing uh, corn stalks in this, but you, you guys have, 
you know, a fair amount of farm ground where you can uh, utilize some cover crops, uh, some additional resources, uh, some grazing aftermath that uh, probably allows you to do it. Uh, if if you just had grass, it would maybe be a little tough, but you've, you've, you've got some versatility in your farming operation that helps you accomplish this, right? Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it goes clear back to you. my parents just letting us think and my dad allowing me to make mistakes and try new things and just trying to innovate, trying to to think about different ways of handling the same issues. And so, yeah, we absolutely, we utilize some irrigated grass, which gets our cows off of our predominantly cool season native range uh, in their rapid growth phase. Uh, we utilize some annual forages uh, with the cover crops, um, some cocktail mixes, whatever the term you want to use. We utilize some of those in the younger cows. And so those add add some different twists and challenges, but certainly um, allows us to do some things with the cow herd too. And so it's just being able to adapt to the resources that you want to use. So back to the the National Reference Sire Program, um, you know, we talked about it's a it's a birth to harvest uh, steer progeny test, and uh, the beauty of this data since 1999 is feeding it directly back into the genetic evaluation uh, because of the randomization and how the cows are bred or heifers are bred. Um, you know, we, we set the female aside, even though we know uh, the maternal contribution on the pedigree records that we have, uh, they're completely randomized. And so we, we end up with an awesome contemporary group structure, uh, usually three really nice big contemporary groups of, of these steers that go through. And um, that information on the, on the progeny flows directly into uh, the sire's EPD um, analysis. So those cattle are harvested, uh, you know, in December of each year. And um, that, that data is, uh, you usually find it in the Hereford world there in February or it's online. But uh, I think that's that's been the, the really neat part is to be able to find a, a really cool yearling bull that uh, has all the traits, the bells and whistles. You know, he, he gets used at Olson's um, that summer. And then by the next year, we have a calf crop on the ground. And then the following year, we have harvest data, um, you know, and carcass data. While that bull's relatively young. And uh, to build upon the accuracy values, of the traits that are listed for him and to, to kind of validate him. And so there's been uh, many young bulls that have been tested over the years, uh, over 300 bulls specifically in this program. And uh, it's been been instrumental not only in, in finding genetics uh, that we need to move forward with, but also ones that uh, maybe give us a little pause and say, okay, um, what what do we need to adapt to and what do we need to change? And so there's there's value on both sides of this. The other thing that, you know, because of whole herd reporting, you know, and the strength that we have in our genetic evaluation, um, these cows are enrolled in that as well. So the daughters are kept back in the herd and your herd there. Uh, and uh, you, you turn in an inventory, much like our purebred breeders do. And so we're getting cow weights, body condition scores, udder and teat information, and obviously the reproductive uh, status of those cows each and every year. And so that's fueled back in the, the backside of the genetic evaluation. And so, I mean, you, you just stop and think about it. Um, you know, we have a few large herds, but uh, Olson's would definitely make the top 10 list relative to um, size and scope when you're looking at a 1, thousand 1200 cows that make up the operation and so the the impact is, is is huge in our genetic evaluation 
Douglas, this would have been before my time, but, uh, I mean, there's honestly been several traits developed, uh, some of the early genomic work, um, we were able to take that data set, uh, from, from the work that you've done. So maybe share a little bit on, on that, on, from a history standpoint, what, what you guys have been able to contribute to back to us. Right. You yeah, have some very good points there. I mean, there's, there's a lot of data that goes into this data set for the Hereford Association that some people don't necessarily think about. I mean, we think about the growth traits, we think about the harvest data, uh, but as we collect those those reproductive traits, the the udder scores and and how that goes into there, I, I think we've made a a fairly significant influence on some of those those udder scores with some of our data. Um, I think we've seen some things maybe before um, it's been caught or been aware of in in some of the registered herds that uh, we're seeing. So. You know, I, I think it's important for people to understand the whole scope of this program. And and we talk about when we started in the first calf crop in 1999, I, I believe there was eight bulls tested that year. And uh, now we test 15 plus a couple of reference hires or somewhere in that area. Uh, so it's been a little different change in size of the program too. But I think one of the the interesting things was when we started getting those daughters that you talk about that are, are progeny of the National Reference Sire Program and and how our herd is built on that those daughters. I mean, I think then you see some of those changes happen even faster once those genetics fill that. And so our cow herd that's being tested or these bulls are being tested in is all made out of cows that are born out of the National Reference Sire Program because uh, all of our females are replacement heifers from an AI mating. We don't have any females in our commercial cows that are from our natural service sired calves or sired. So I think that's a big thing in this too. Uh, I think when we look back some of those early years, uh, the accuracy is not the same as it is today and when what we saw from those progeny uh, we used to uh, combine the heifers and the cows all in one contemporary group and it became apparent that we needed to do something different there and so today we contemporary group those first calvers separately uh, from the rest of the cow herd and so there's usually just three bulls tested plus a reference sire in the in the yearling heifers that are come with their first calf. So that's some of the changes. Um, certainly the DNA work, the genomics, and, and working through some of those uh, traits and the University of Missouri, working through some of the heritability of RFI. And uh, the Hereford Association had some of the cleanest data because it became out of these be contemporary groups versus uh, some of the other breeds that maybe had more data points, but a lot more contemporary groups were represented there. And so uh, that's one set of data that I'm aware of, but certainly uh, these cattle would be used as a training population for some of the genomics work and where all of our cows now uh, contribute to the genetic genomics and all of the steer progeny uh, all the heifer or all the steer progeny uh, are dna tested and so that all pools into the training population for those traits and there's no doubt uh, you know what we've been able to leverage i mean it's it's part of the genetic evaluation but it also can be paired out really quickly and kind of ran on its own um, through some of the validation, I know we've we've tested different uh, commercial panels um, that have that have come our way to on their efficacy and uh, just just to look at different things. Uh, this subset um, of cattle have have proved pretty invaluable to to the breed and 
and progress and the direction that, that we've gone and, and, uh, you know, the inclusion of feed intake and, and measuring, uh, efficiency and conversion, RFI, uh, wh- whatever you want to look at, it's, it's definitely leveraged us in a, in a really, uh, valuable spot, uh, in terms of data library and, and what we can do going forward. So, um, Douglas, and we've, we've kind of opened up a new chapter here and there, there's some days where I, I think, uh, all you get done is data, uh, or working on a machine and, uh, we've limited your, uh, Kalman ability to, uh, um, study, study, uh, cow lines and pedigrees and, and, uh, just breed cattle and, um, uh, We've we've turned you into almost a bench scientist. I I say that lightly, but there's there's some days where uh, you've got a lot going on um, there and what you do for us. We've uh, you're you're in the progress. Why don't you tell the folks what you're in the in the progress of doing as far as updating your your systems and, and feedlot there. In 2010 is when we installed the feed efficiency testing with the gross safe feed intake nodes and uh, today we are preparing to uh, not only update those gross safe which is now vitali uh, feed intake nodes but uh, we will be ta- we will be installing nodes that will measure water intake and so we will have the ability to measure individual water intake in all of the animals that are tested for feed efficiency during that trial, as well as being able to test a couple groups of cattle in a big pen setting. So that will get us a couple things. It will get us uh, weights as they step onto that system to drink that will measure a weight and measure their water intake. And so we hope to be able to leverage some of that data uh, to get a little more accurate weight immediately before some of these animals go to harvest that are in the big pen setting. Uh, We hope to see how water intake and feed intake relate. And then we will have probably some data in our replacement heifers with just water intake and, and how that relates to some of the steer progeny that are being tested beside them. Uh, As well as, I mean, this last, summer last fall there uh, the people are aware that we with the Hereford Association's arrangement with Colorado State uh, testing the carbon dioxide methane emissions and so we have those machines three of those machines in our pens uh, that we measured the first set of cattle in that uh, October to early December time frame of 2022 and we'll continue with that project going forward so a lot of a lot of exciting things happening uh, uh, additional phenotypes it's like you know how do you how do you make the best better and uh, uh, we're trying it um, you know and it's it's uh, we couldn't do it without the foundation that uh, you know we have there uh, at the ranch and your cow herd and that great repository of data, um, you know, allows, you know, ideas and thoughts like this to happen, um, to, to keep moving us along and, and, and utilizing, um, the data and, and the cow herd and, and of course your talents, uh, more and more. So, uh, we appreciate uh, what you guys have done, you know, um, and, and your willingness to, to take on some of these, uh, new projects and it'll be interesting where it takes us forward. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, this thought of water intake, you know, it, it offers, uh, some endless possibilities. Uh, we would assume that there's, there's pretty good variance and differences. Uh, we know there is and what animals consume each, but if we can somehow, use this to maybe predict feed intake um it makes it a little simpler and easier 
to include those water troughs and water equipment than it is maybe putting in feed intake units for the for the masses and commercially speaking it really i think opens opens up an unlimited opportunity and in commercial feedlot settings so that's that's going to be some of the early first of its kind research that's going to take place this summer um, uh, along with all the CSU work that's being done uh, currently there. So, Douglas, one thing we haven't touched on, well, there's two things here. Um, I, I do want to shed some light on your success that you've had, um, you know, bringing back your registered herd. And, um, you know, you have a bull cell uh, every January there, the end of January, where you market uh, kind of your program, uh, your philosophy, um, and have grown that substantially here in the last years. Um, so let's, let's share some, some insights on that. I think, I mean, just from our conversation, I would, I would hope that people understand our passion for, uh, not just helping ourselves, but helping other breeders improve the product that they raise, the way they raise it, and, and certainly their end product, how it goes to the consumers. And and I take a lot of that back to the registered cow herd that we have today. Uh, we talked about dad raising registered cattle uh, back in the 70s, 80s. Um, we're very excited about genetics. And so after we got kind of started back through the National Reference Sire Program, we wanted to be a little more involved with the registered cattle. And so we ended up buying some registered cows and getting back into the national, to the registered herd and uh, started marketing some of those bulls. But what we were really doing was gleaning data and finding bulls that worked in the National Reference Sire Program in our commercial herd and then went and used those bulls in our registered herd. And so, uh, you know, some of those bulls we didn't use until some of those daughters got to be several years old and said, hey, these cows are staying around in our commercial herd. Let's go see if we can use some of that bull in our registered cows. And so, you know, we've developed that registered herd with some of those ideas that we talked about, uh, fitting bulls that fit our environment. Um, I think they can easily be adapted for other areas, but uh, we're really specifically targeting this High Plains region um, and some of the resources we have. And so it, it's been fun to grow that herd and be involved in the registered program, uh, the, the genetics and trying to help people out. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun and enjoyable to have customers use these bulls and and tell about the success that they've had with their calves. Of course, practically all of these bulls go to um, black-hided cattle in our area. And so uh, these baldies really shine for these producers. And so they're excited about them. Uh, that's, what, that's what makes us happy. And so we've been able to, to leverage what we've learned in the National Reference Area Program, honestly, to to develop our registered herd and so yeah we we will market uh 18 19 month old bulls in january into january um you know our our registered cattle are run very similar to our commercial cows and so we wean a, a relatively smaller calf compared to what some people are used to uh they run out our registered calves run out with our commercial calves However, they brought, are brought in, in in March instead of June to be fed a little bit. We feed those bulls and, and test them for feed efficiency alongside of the heifers there. And then they are kicked back out uh, for grass and marketed later in, in, into January. So it, it's fun to be able to see the progress of the program. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other thing, and I, I think... Uh, you know, not enough people know of this. There, there's uh, vacancies open in your testing facility uh, throughout different times of the year, and so 
Um, if you're a, another registered breeder, I know you've had cattle come from a decent ways away to to be fed and, and tested. And, and now with the opportunity, depending on what kind of data you want to collect, uh, you can capture some of this uh, feed intake data in a relatively short amount of time. And uh, Art, Art's a pretty good uh, feed guy. He, he's I've seen him out there. So your cattle are going to get fed well. And, um, you know, you can capture some of this data uh, opposed to maybe putting in a facility yourself. That's always good, too. But if you don't have that opportunity, um, here's maybe an opportunity for you to, to send some heifers, send some bulls, uh, or you could do your own small progeny test and uh, have have the Olsons finish them out there. So, Douglas, share with our listeners maybe some opportunity that's there at the ranch. Absolutely, Shane. I mean, certainly an opportunity to have some animals tested. Uh, so a lot of these uh, feed efficiency trials use 90 days in the pens. Uh, with the in-pen weighing system, maybe we shorten that up some, but... Uh, if we just run with what we have in the past, a 90-day trial uh, in June, 1st of June roughly, is when we filled our pens with the National Reference Sire calves uh, out of our mature cows, which fills the pens. Then in uh, roughly 1st of September, uh, most of the pens are filled with uh, Reference Sire calves out of the 1st and 2nd calvers, uh, which leads to two or three pens being empty for custom cattle. And so we can test cattle there early September in that slot. Uh, also then come 1st of December or rough shortly thereafter, we empty those pens of our own cattle and that is strictly custom data collection time for us. And so December, early December is a good time to come. We have some existing customers that we save pen space for, uh, but we have a customer that's been there every year since uh, we started this these pens, and so uh, he's been there. Um, and then the first of March trial, uh, we will typically come close to filling the pens. Maybe have one empty pen, but uh, we fill those with our own registered cattle in that time slot. So, like Shane said, I mean, whether it's a bull, a heifer, or a group of steers, we've done all of those. And uh, certainly can collect that data for you. Uh, it's, it's exciting to have the the water intake data to add to that list uh, going forward. I'm I'm really excited to see what that data tells us, what we can glean from that. And I, I like Shane alluded to. I mean, this is there's not much of that data out there at all, and so we're all going to be learning on some of this water intake data. So here in. Uh... Kind of finishing up, Douglas, uh, if you could say uh, one line, one phrase, two sentences worth, why should a purebred breeder nominate a bull in their national reference sire herd to be tested at your ranch? My one word is documentation. I think it's just the, the proof. Um, where are you going to? test your bulls against so many different genetics. Uh, a lot of times I call this herd the melting pot of the, of the Hereford breed just because where else are you going to see a line one bull and a homozygous polled bull and a bull from the southeast and a bull from the northeast all mated randomly to the same set of cows. I just think the statistics, the significance of all that is just powerful uh, to how you're going to document what your animal is. Um, we talked about the accuracy of what we've been able to increase these e accuracy on these EPDs. And um, I just, I know those EPDs have changed even before we get them, that the accuracy is better today than it was 24 years ago when we started this. Um, where else are you going to, be able to analyze your animal that's in a test that's world-renowned. I mean, the Hereford Association has a very unique test 
that uh, when I talk to people from Australia that know Hereford cattle, know about the National Reference Sire Program. Uh, when you talk to people across the United States, they know the National Reference Sire Program. They see this data, whether it's the carcass data that they're interested in, whether it's the growth traits, uh, they're following how the genomics evolve. Uh, people are people are watching this, and I would just invite anybody that has questions to call me. But especially, just come look. And I think it's it's pretty neat to come look at uh, these steer progeny when they're close to harvest. Uh, I mean, I tell people October is a really a Maybe November is a really cool time to come to the ranch and see the genetics because you can see the prior year calf crop uh, not quite finished, but they're close to it. And so you can see some of those differences still. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to compare some of these sires that you know and see other places, uh, see them compared in a commercial feedlot setting. And, and then you can see cows raising their calves at that point too. Uh, we're done breeding cows, so they're scattered in, in big big groups. Uh, so it's just a fun time to see the melting pot of the Hereford breed. Very good. And uh, one thing I'd add to that is that when uh, your sire or your bull gets used in the National Reference Sire Program, that ties your herd into this population as well when you go back and use that bull. And so uh, the linkage piece of this uh, shouldn't be underscored um, because the, the the depth and the reach that it has. And so um, even if you don't have a bull that gets put in the, in the program or selected using bulls that have been tested through the National Reference Sire Program, as an AI sire ties your walking bulls in more closely and more linked to build accuracy and proof on some of those hard to measure traits. So it it's a, it's a great opportunity. We have that sort and that selective statement available on any of the searches that you do. You've probably all seen that before. Uh, that opportunity is still available. Uh, we made sure and had that available on the new search tool uh, that's up and running. So I encourage you to, to go through there and, and browse uh, those sires uh, that have been used uh, in the reference sire program before, because you're going to find some of the heavy hitters in the breed uh, for sure that have gone through that. So Douglas, certainly appreciate uh, your time, uh, your family's efforts and your dedication to the Hereford breed through this program, it, it certainly shines each and every year. So any parting comments? Well, I would think the Hereford, American Hereford Association for, I mean, we enjoy this. And so we would thank them for our being able to be involved in this program. And, and then none of this happens if the members don't nominate a bull. So I don't think we can take lightly how important it is for members to be interested in the data and denominate a bull and, and proceed with this program. And so it takes everybody. We enjoy it. Uh, we're passionate about making the Hereford breed better. We're passionate about the product that we produce and feeding consumers in the United States and abroad. I mean, just, it's just exciting. Yes, sir. Well, I appreciate you listening to uh, this episode of 1881. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes if you've missed them. Uh, April's coming right at us here pretty quick, and so uh, we've got a great guest planned for April with uh, Mr. Jared Herman that uh, we've talked a little bit about before that uh, is now the owner of uh, the Mitchell Livestock in uh, Mitchell, South Dakota, and also is the owner of the Cherokee livestock market that will be hosting uh, the first Hereford special there uh, the middle of April. So we're going to have Jared on and uh, him share a little bit about uh, his background. So 
Thank you all for listening. And with that, we're signing off. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hereford Association's podcast, 1881, with host Shane Bedwell. For more information, visit Hereford.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.